0: The nice thing about private lending, especially nowadays with remote investing being so commonplace thanks to COVID, is you can be as involved as you want to be. So literally you could start out and just say, you know what, I want to place my funds with someone that's going to broker the money for me and they're just basically going to connect me with a borrower and that broker is going to do all the underwriting, that broker is going to collect the payment, you know, basically. I'm just there to supply the capital and then I will get my payments, whether that's through the broker or directly from the borrower, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you are doing all the underwriting, you are doing the due diligence on the property, on the borrower, you know, you're doing the analysis, you're wiring the funds, like you're doing everything. So there's really that freedom to be as active, as actively passive as you want to be.
1: All right, guys, welcome again to another amazing episode. Today we have Alex Brashears. Uh, she's a private money lender, a regulation A fund investor. Uh, she's a multifamily underwriter, educator, limited partner in multifamily syndications. She's, uh, she does everything. She's also a professor. Uh, I, just, I just read that in the bio. I thought it was amazing. Uh, so she teaches um, and she has an amazing Facebook group. Uh, private money lending which I absolutely love um, I hadn't seen that twist in in Facebook groups yet and I think you hit a very keen niche and it's not spammy um, because a lot of the private lending groups I have seen turn up to be just scam after scam posting but I uh, check it out please it's, it's a lot of value I've actually met some private lenders on there I just googled city and you know, well, not Google, but search in your group city, and contacted some, and we, we chatted. We I learned what they do, and and they're, they're brokers. Some are private money. So, yeah, it's very very amazing group. But we're gonna dive in here because she, she's done a little bit of everything, and this is normally that other side that we talk about where you become the bank, um, and most people don't realize that you can also do this part. So we're gonna give some actionable tips. If you can tell us a little bit about, you know, when you first started, how you started that um, that private lending, how did you make yourself comfortable? So yeah, let's start with that piece.
0: So it it actually happened all quite by accident. So about 20 years ago, I walked into a RIA event where my husband was stationed at the time. My husband's active duty Navy and uh, you know, this, just, you know, networking, talking to people in the community, The person happened to mention, he goes, oh, you're you're a math and science major. You should be good with numbers. And I was like, yeah, not too bad. You know, I'm in Calc three. And uh, he goes, well, he goes, have you ever thought about being a loan broker? And I was like, no, not, not really. Never, never crossed my path. And uh, he explained a little bit about what the process was. And he said the magic words, every college student loves to hear. You can work your own hours. (laughs) I was like, sold. So uh, I came on board with him and he was actually a private, what we would consider now a private money lender. He was lending out his own funds. He did have some like warehouse lines of credit with a bank, you know, just kind of small time doing maybe six to 10 deals a month. Nothing, nothing outstanding. But back then, um, this was kind of the, the era of the pager and the fax machine. You were actually driving to the properties to collect an application from a borrower. You were walking the property to see the scope of work with, you know, with a potential borrower. So I really learned the real estate business kind of crash course from the lending perspective. Uh, I did that for a few years in Florida. Uh, at some point, you get tired of being out in the heat. So uh, I switched over to doing conventional lending for people that were ultimately buying these investor homes. And then obviously with the military, we move around a lot, we got moved out of state. So real estate kind of became something in the back burner. But when we were stationed here in Norfolk, Norfolk's kind of the hub of the Navy for the East Coast. So we had an opportunity to kind of stay here for a little while. And then we had this perfect storm, I hate to say it like that with COVID, where you know everybody was kind of brought home hard money lenders shut their doors and said, we're going to take a beat. We're not going to lend. And just through my community, again, going back to active duty, other military members, I just happened to meet another active duty service member within the local community that said he was losing out on a deal because uh, his hard money lender shut his doors uh, a few days before he was supposed to close. And, you know, it just happened to be, he was the type of borrower I'd want to work with. It was the type of property I'd want to lend on. I was like, you know what? If you can give me like a couple of weeks to get all the legal side straightened out and, you know, get an EIN number, get a bank account, I was like, I'll do this. I'll fund this. You know, we'll take that leap. And uh, it ended up working out, I mean, beautifully. And I mean, he's still, he's a good friend to this day. We've done other deals since then, but it really just kind of came back from a place of, you know, I was comfortable doing this because it was something that's literally how my introduction into real estate started so long ago
1: that is amazing
2: Nice,
1: German you got you got something there that I'd say. yeah
2: my my my, my lady says like wow <laughs> this is awesome uh and, and the reason is because I I particularly have people that ask me how do they start like they have they have some capital right um and they I mean people go in real estate and they think that something's easier than other things to be but they asked me about, uh, about how do they start with hard money lending? How do they start lending their money? Because they have a W2, they don't have the time, but they have the capital to uh, not so much. I don't want to do the homework on, on, on the properties. I don't want to do this, but let me just lend my money. How do I start? And I was like, okay, let me, let me find out. So I've been doing the research, but I got the expert. So if you can tell me how you start, how much you started with um, and, and what got you comfortable to, to lend your money.
0: Yeah, the nice thing about private lending, especially nowadays with remote investing being so commonplace thanks to COVID, is you can be as involved as you want to be. So you literally, you could start out and just say, you know what? I want to place my funds with someone that's going to broker the money for me, and they're just basically going to connect me with a borrower, and that broker is going to do all the underwriting, that broker is going to collect the payment, you know, basically, I'm just there to supply the capital, and then I will get my payments, whether that's through the broker or directly from the borrower all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you are doing all the underwriting you are doing the due diligence on the property on the borrower you know you're doing the analysis you're wiring the funds like you're doing everything so there's really that freedom to be as active as actively passive as you want to be and that's even even beyond that even post closing you can set the expectations with your borrower and say you know i want to check up you know, every day, I want to check up every week. I want to check up every month, you know, whatever those expectations are. So you can remain as involved in the particular deal as you want to be. So I would say from that perspective, that's really very open and flexible. It's just a matter of what your risk tolerance is, what your comfort level is, how involved you really want to be, and maybe what your knowledge base is from the very beginning. If you're brand new to real estate, you don't know a lot of the lingo. You don't know a lot of the terms for fix and flip and buy and hold. Maybe that's an opportunity to place your funds with a broker and just kind of set the expectation with that broker and say, can you kind of teach me and walk me through this in the future? So future deals, it's easier for me to understand and work with you and get an answer back to you faster. So you can kind of work it from that perspective. Uh, Realistically, depending again on your risk tolerance and what you're trying to accomplish, um, you could start out with something as little as $30,000. There are still markets in the United States where you could be in a first lien position for anywhere between, I would say, forty and seventy thousand dollars. If you want to start with less than that, you could potentially look at doing something that would be a second lien position. Again, that's not for that's not for rookies, but it's something. Yeah. It's a possibility. Um, I think a, a common misconception is you need to start out with like half a million dollars to yeah. do private lending. And it really, it really can just be a good place to start and learn about real estate. You know, even something as simple as JVing with someone else, where you're the capital partner, could consider, be considered private lending also. So if you want to be a capital partner to somebody who is more experienced, it's a great way to learn the business if your goal is to be an active investor.
1: No, that's amazing. There's a couple to unpack what you said. A couple of key things you said. <laughs> Everything was key, actually, but, but yeah. two of the things that really stood out to me is, you know, when you, when you say, you know, the, the, the amount of money that you need to invest, right? A lot of people think that $500 million or a million dollars, but $30,000, I know it sounds a lot for some people, and, and it can be when you're first saving. But in the grand scheme of things, if you can learn how to actually invest in your first $30,000, and even if you lose money, is probably the best loss you can have to then actually learn how to make maximize your potential because i know when i first lost that a certain amount of money like that i was like oh wow but i've learned it in a way that no education could have ever paid for unfortunately it's a loss but yeah. you know, yeah it is pretty big and then the other thing i was going to say is about about market so um do you because i know for example the midwest is pretty cheap right we we invest in ohio um you could buy a home for twenty five thousand, right so i guess it depends on the risk tolerance but usually those are c areas you know um maybe even d areas do you recommend a newbie lender right going into that if they find an experienced uh flipper or or no
0: it really depends on their goals. So, for example, um, I only lend on fix and flips because I want to be in and out of a deal in a few months. In this mm-hmm. particular environment with COVID, those markets that are quote unquote cheaper, um, they tend to be pretty static markets. They're not going to be appreciation markets. So, you know, for your house that might ARV for fifty thousand dollars this year, maybe might be fifty five thousand dollars five years from now. You know, yeah. it's it, you're really doing a cash flow play. So from a lender's perspective, I feel like if your your loan to value is low enough, where if the market does dip, you're not underwater, um, and you don't wouldn't mind owning that house if the loan defaults, you know, it would probably be it's still a collateralized asset. You know, theoretically, somebody's still going to come behind and buy that property once you get title back to it. If you if it does get that far, uh, it's still a collateralized asset. So I I'd say from that perspective. It wouldn't necessarily bo- bother me from a new lender perspective. It's really going to be the operator of the deal. Can they execute the business plan? Do they have the experience? Do they have the boots on the ground? Are they also remote, for example? You know, so it's those things that to me would matter more than possibly the property itself.
1: So, what what specific criteria that you that you have, or that you maybe started with, and realized that you need to put in place? <laughs>
0: Uh, always learning real estate, yeah, yeah, will always teach always, you something. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you never stop learning this stuff, and never you, stop always, learning. There was something that you're like, Wow, that you can do that! Yeah,
0: yeah. So, yeah. I would say for the the nice thing about private lending, I call it our blessing and our curse is that it's flexible. So, the way I do private lending can be very different than the way other people do private lending, and that's again both good and bad because active investors are going to invest differently from each other as well. But I invest uh, I invest purely here in Hampton Roads as far as the private lending goes, because this is my backyard. This is the market I know. Um, I really like this market because we fared really well during COVID because we had very low unemployment because we have a very high federal employment base here. Yeah. Uh, so our, our housing prices, our, our real estate assets have just gone through the roof in the last year. I mean, unbelievably so. Um, and then under that same kind of notion I am going to be lending on stuff that's purely fix and flip. So there's going to be a retail buyer involved in this process somewhere. So it has to be something that a retail buyer is obviously going to want. So, you know, good school district. So all three schools have to be, all three levels of school have to be six out of 10 or above. The house has to be within 10% of the average square footage of the neighborhood. And the house has to be has an ARV within 10% of the median home price for that zip code and that kind of keeps me to the basic bread and butter, you know, the thing every flipper wants, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, ranch, you know, paint it beige and gray on the inside, and redo the kitchens and countertops and then it's sold the day it hits MLS. That's what my goal is as a lender. And that's something I like about private lending because your goals are very much aligned with the active investor versus, you know, landlord tenant relationship tends to be very counterproductive in some cases. Um, Whereas, you know, when you're working with another investor, it's, you know, you both want the property renovated, you both want the property rented, you both want the property sold, whatever the the business plan is for that particular property. So again, it goes back to having that open communication with the borrower, you know, they keep you in line, you know, hey, I ordered windows the day we closed, they haven't come in yet. Uh, We ordered appliances, those are three weeks on back order, you know, those things. So if there are delays, you're aware of them.
1: No, that's, that's. That's amazing to, to hear that you, you have a, a process. Are you is there a specific time frame maximum six months, eight months? What are you how how quick are you looking to get out?
0: Uh realistically, three to four months. Because by wow, the time that's quick, yeah. Yeah. By the time they close, um, the other kind of caveat that we've kind of put in place during COVID is we want something that's gonna be a relatively minor rehab because of those supply chain issues. And supplies, just the the raw materials themselves were just going up exponentially for a short period of time there. I mean, wood, I think, has tripled in the last year as far as prices go. So, you know, we wanted to be, we wanted to have our money kind of out for short periods of time on the off chance, you know, something does fall off a cliff with the economy. I feel a little more secure now that the world's starting to open back up. Uh, But we wanted something that would be basically kind of a minor rehab, you know, nothing structural, we're not taking out walls, we're not taking the thing down to the studs, you know, it's just freshen up the kitchen, put in new flooring, paint, maybe change out some of the light fixtures and then back on the market it goes so it can be something that can be rehabbed in three to four months, and then on the market with MLS and then goes into escrow with a retail buyer and they're in escrow 30, 45 days and we're in and out of the deal in three to four months.
1: That's that's amazing. You know, you know. I think anything under six months, obviously, you're targeting some experienced, uh, you know, uh, flippers. So that I can tell that's your criteria. Yes. And for anyone listening out there, I mean, usually three to four months. That's it's relative quick. Quick. If they have that, that means they have their processes down and they've done this. Um, and then if it's anything less than that, they're like, then they're pros. The, I've only yeah. heard of very few people do like weeks. So, and yeah, so that's rare. And then, so are you, sorry, I lost my question. German, go.
2: <laughs> well, I do, have, I do have one, this is for the people, again, that, that are trying to get in there. They talk about passive income, you know, the, the, the tax, uh, uh, I don't want to say repercussions because that sounds like a punishment, but the, the, the tax implications on, on being a private lender. Is it passive income, which is taxed as passive income, or is it like more of capital gains?
0: It's actually just basically interest earned. So if you think about like the interest you would earn on a savings account, that that form that you get from your bank at the end of the year, it's regular interest earned. So from that perspective, I know a lot of private lenders will kind of mix some sort of equity into the equation somehow. Um, I, for example, will invest in syndications as a limited partner to kind of get that equity side, that equity play. Um, other passive investors might have, you know, one or two rentals, they might own a duplex or something. Um, it's just, a, it's something where a lot of private lenders will also be owners or investing in some way where they're in the equity side of the deal for those, those kind of tax breaks that you were mentioning, like depreciation, and whatnot, because you're not going to yeah. get that when you're just purely on the debt side.
1: Yeah. So, So then do you take that? And are you saying you do like a, a 1031 and then roll it into a, um, as a limited partner?
0: No, How it's two, you- co- it's two completely separate trains oh, of thought. Okay. So yeah, we have, we have one pool of money that we do private lending with, and then we have another pool of money that we would invest in syndications gotcha. because we're cash flow investors. So you're kind of making that halfway middle where you have the the private lending that's constantly Mm -hmm. being churned, but then you have LP positions that hopefully will come in, you know, routinely with quarterly dividends to kind of smooth out that up and down as you're looking for deals.
1: Gotcha. And then the way it happens in tax season, and then just for anyone listening, no one here is a, an accountant or uh, a legal advisor, but we're just going through it. So when you, when you do it at the end of the year, you're saying interest like a savings account. And basically that interest is the taxable, portion or you that get shown to the irs correct yes yes okay okay all right man that that's one really... more question then no keep going, keep going. yeah
2: because I, I don't think you found yours yet <laughs> no I did. Uh, i wrote it down that's so, what I meant. <laughs> okay hey so so for the for the, the uh, our listeners and the viewers this uh, we're recording this in march at the end of march um, how is the market playing right now i mean it's, it's a hot market whatever you look at i mean houses are that the demand is, is, is huge. They're hot. Everybody is, whoever doesn't have cash is not, they're not able to close on, on any deals. How, how is that playing for you guys on the uh, private investing side?
0: It's been tricky because we're having more investors um, coming to us with what, what they call our deals, but in my opinion, not really deals. You know, they're paying, in my opinion, just way too much for what they have. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes they're paying over asking, and when you sit and have a conversation, you know the banks aren't evaluating these ARVs very high. If anything, the banks have kind of gone the other way in my experience, the, the conventional oh. lenders. So if they plan on burring this property, you know they think this is gonna be the perfect burr because they have this very inflated ARV because everything hitting the market is selling for over asking. Just because it's sold for over asking doesn't mean it's gonna appraise for over asking. And yeah. since they're wanting to refinance, the appraisals, what matters to them, not the sales price. And when you're having that conversation with them, that this is not the deal you think it is. And then, you know, they're like, Oh, well, I'll just throw it on the market and sell it. Well, this is not a retail neighborhood, you know? So if you sell it, you're going to have to sell it to another investor. And in my opinion, they're far less likely to pay for an occupied rental. Yeah, exactly. They're not, they're not going to do that. They're investors and
1: I'm going to buy at at Market Value.
0: Yeah, yeah, so it's it's interesting to see that coming across a little more and it's it's personally been a little scary because I've come across new investors that you know I'm I'm happy they've taken this opportunity to better themselves financially and try to get involved in investing but they're taking out like HELOCs on their primary residence to go and get into these deals, thinking they're gonna burr them and get that money back out. And then when you have a conversation with them and say, you're potentially leaving 20 to $30,000 of your HELOC, of your primary residence locked in equity in this property, you know, the the look on their face is like deer in the headlights, like, what do you mean? You know, I'm I'm gonna burr it. And I'm like, okay, well, that's great, but they're only gonna give you, you know, the days of 80% LTV cash out refinances on investment properties, not there. So mm-hmm. at best you're 75% and then you got a roll in closing costs for that refinance. So you're really yeah. looking at more like 72, um, you know, and it, you're already buying it. What above 72 plus renovations. So when you kind of run through the numbers yeah. in a more conservative fashion, they get a little surprised. So that's you know, been a little challenging.
1: <laughs> I, I love when everything you said, man, I'm loving this interview so much because you know, you're a math person and I, I really love that because I hear so much, right? Ah, oh, real estate is so easy. It's basic math. And it's, while the concept, concepts are basic, if you want to be a true professional in anything, right, you're going to have to get a little bit sophisticated in your analysis, right? And that's not basic at all. Uh, and that takes a little bit of experience too of, of failure and, and messing up. But the BRRRR method, you know, I, I love it too, but people think I can put a million dollars into a flip. And that is going to appraise at a million dollars. Yep. That's not the way residential works. That's not <laughs> no. the way market comps yeah. work, right? And that's one of the reasons we, we talk about why commercial has a, a clear advantage over residential. But I, I love that you hit that. It's not going to appraise. You have to do those numbers and really the nitty gritty. I love bigger pockets, but I think that's where they're failing people. <laughs> you know, really that the Burr method is, is advertised so much. You know, let me so I have a question. What's the typical return that you can expect? And I know this is everyone's different, your your experience is different, but for you, what what's the typical people you can expect I would, that is?
0: I would say for a first lien position, um, anywhere from eight percent to even up to 14% in some markets is what your kind of annual interest rate would be. Um yeah. you can charge anywhere between 0 points and 5 points for origination fee, it really, your limitations are really going to be a set of rules called usury laws that are for the state the borrower is in. So usually the private lender and the borrower and the property are all in the same state, Um, but that's kind of going to limit the upper, that's going to be the upper limits of what you can actually charge because anything above that is technically an illegal loan. So that's really the, the part that uh, gets people. So it's a little bit like the wild, wild west. You can kind of set your own prices, but there is that upper limit where you want to stay within limits of the usury laws. And, so, and, it's
2: used to, and, and it's also based on market, right? Depending on, on what the competition is doing, because you you don't want to be the guy that is starting most and nobody's gonna come to you because you can find it cash.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean it, it really does. And it's also your business model. So, like for example, you mentioned earlier, like I wanna work with experienced investors. So they're not going to pay 14% for a first lien position because they're not a 14% risk. You know, they have a contractor team that goes from deal to deal to deal. You know, they've done this a hundred times. They are going to be an 8% borrower. Whereas if you're someone that's, you know, fresh off the block, you've never done this before, you know, 14% might not be enough, you know, because most people that do their first fix and flip end up losing money in that fix and flip. Um, so, you know, you want to make sure that it's priced accordingly to the business plan, the market and what the deal actually is.
2: Yeah.
1: So can you walk us through, you know, the steps that you take? And then you mentioned, you know, uh, the laws, right. The legal piece, you know, can you, every state is different, but you know, in, in your case and you've moved around, right. So there's, I'm sure you've seen different, but the generic, you know, path that there is. And, and then filing, I imagine you go to a county clerk or something to put the lien. Uh, you know, how does that all work? Right.
0: That part is pretty standard. So oh, when, okay. it, when it comes to the actual, the closing part, what most people kind of think of private money is I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollar check, and then you're going to take that to closing. And like, that's not what happens at all. Um, so I'm actually, as a lender, going to once we've done due diligence and we say we're going to fund the deal and here's how much we're going to loan, we actually wire the funds to closing. And the borrower always, always, always brings funds to closing. You never ever as a borrower give money directly to the private lender. That's a scam 100% of the time, never do it. Um, So all the money that exchanges hands before the deal closes only exchanges hands through the escrow company, the closing attorney, title company, whatever you're using. So that's, that's rule number one. But from there, really, it's just me wiring money to the closing attorney. The closing happens at the closing attorney's office. The HUD one you know, shows where all the funds are being dispersed. If there's any funds above and beyond the purchase price that are gonna be used for renovations, that can vary from, bar, from a private lender to private lender and how that's handled. What I personally do is the money is held in escrow. And then as the repairs and renovations and things are done and installed and paid for, the active investor then gets reimbursed from those escrow funds. I do know mm. private lenders that will give them, you know, some upfront to order the supplies or, you know, pay a deposit to the contractor or whatever, but I do yeah. a refund model.
1: Got you. So does the escrow account directly pay the contractors? Is that the way you have it?
0: The escrow, no, the escrow I, company actually pays the active investor because the active I mean the investor, active. Ha, the active investor has already has to pay the uh, contractors because the contractors are signing off on the dotted line a mechanics lien waiver saying yeah. I was paid in full for this roof or this tile job or whatever they happen to do. Yep. And then that's something that they submit to us as a lender saying, look, you know, here's pictures of the tile floor installed. Here's a lien waiver from the tile installer. Yeah. Here's the invoice showing it was paid. Gotcha. And then we reimburse the active investor.
1: To release the funds. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then as far as, you know, you um, setting up that escrow, is that is that part of the escrow that is done at closing or is that a separate escrow account that you set up?
0: That is going to be at closing. So okay. I would contact the closing attorney and say, it's, it's good to go ahead and disperse, you know, $5,000 or whatever you. it happens to be, um, to the active investor.
1: Yeah. So that's awesome. You, you, you have the escrow account established during the whole, uh, transaction and closing. It remains there as the flip is being done. And then the disbursements happen as they prove the maintenance repairs are happening okay yes and then as far as the the legal side of paperwork um are you what what kind of contract are you setting up with this uh in active investor and then where is that getting documented and recorded at
0: so they will sign generally they'll sign two pieces of paper you can have them sign additional things but the two most important pieces of paper are going to be the promissory note and then depending on your state it's either going to be a deed of trust or a mortgage and then the cl- that all happens at closing and then the deed of trust or mortgage is then sent to the courthouse for the municipality the property is in and then that actually gets recorded and that's your secured lien on the property so if there's ever a title search pulled for that property if they go to sell it or refinance it it will show up as a lien on that property so nothing they can't obviously issue clear title until that lien is paid
1: nice nice yeah no that, that's amazing can you tell us a little bit about the the laws about working you know what are the limits how do you know if you're breaking the limit the limit portion that you mentioned earlier
0: i would say that is a great question for an attorney that's familiar with lending a lot of people will just go and talk to their local like close real estate attorney and nothing against them but they generally don't know a lot about lending because if you think about it all the the lending docs are usually sent to them you know they just have to point it and say sign here they're not the ones generally drawing up that documentation so it's really important to have a conversation with an attorney that's familiar with lending in your area because it's not like the usury laws are are set like maximum 15%. There's actually all these layers. So one individual lending money to another individual is one set of usury laws. Um, You know, a one LLC lending money to another LLC is a different set of usury laws. So when you go back to kind of the structure of your business model, most people, and even hard money lenders do this for this reason, they will open an LLC, do their lending out of the LLC, but they will only lend money to another LLC. So if you've ever, if you're an active investor and you've had a hard money loan company tell you that we will only lend to your LLC, there's the reason probably is because the usury laws are more, um, what shall we say fruitful, they have higher limits if it's an LLC lending money to another LLC versus two individuals involved in the transaction. So that's why I say that layer of complexity really is best answered by an attorney.
1: Mm. Okay. No, no, that's, but that, that gave us exactly what I was, I was looking at because, you know, for the people that move around a lot too, I, and they think they might know the law where they're currently living and then they move you know they have to be aware that you know these things vary by state to state and I imagine even by city and county laws as well that that may change as well am I correct on that
0: in some places there actually are different usury laws for different municipalities you know beyond the state level so absolutely
1: okay yeah no that's all great info let me see here German what do you have
2: well, let's uh, and because I, I I think we got enough of the uh, private lending side, and I was I was pretty excited because I don't I don't hear a lot, a lot you know. I mean, yeah. We hear about hard money lending, but we don't hear the intricate it, so it was pretty good in education. Go ahead. Oscar.
1: I do have one. So hard money lending and private money, what is your difference definition?
0: To- to me, they are two very different things. And I know a lot of investors use them interchangeably, mm-hmm, um, but yeah, <laughs> it happens all the time, yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like a small distinction, but it has huge implications. So private money is money that that person's usually their own capital, whether it's capital that they have capital, they have access to, they are basically the ones that can make the decision for the terms, uh, the length, you know, whatever it happens to be, what they're willing to lend on. Whereas hard money loans or hard money lenders are normally backed by some, you know, warehouse entity, whether it's a hedge fund out of New York, whether it's a warehouse line of credit they have with a big bank, and those those entities come with strings attached. So they have basically kind of submitted their business plan to this warehouse line of credit provider and say, we will only lend to borrowers that have above a 680 credit score. We won't go above 65% LTV. We will always charge three points. We will always do this. We will always do that. So if you as a borrower, don't check all those boxes, they can't do a loan for you because they have the strings attached. So when you're yeah. talking to a private money lender, you're talking to the underwriter, you're talking to the processor, you're talking to the person that's making the decisions. So we have a lot more flexibility to say, okay, well, this one, we're probably comfortable doing 70% LTV. Whereas this, you know, this other deal, no, this really needs to be at 65 for this other reason. Okay.
2: Oh, that makes sense. That makes total sense.
1: Yeah. Now that you say it that way. Yeah. total, You know, cause in the past I've always, and I know when we talked, I was like, after we left, I was like, man, what, what's, hey. It? Hey. you made that point. And you told me, no, 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 no. I private lend, I don't hire money. And I yeah. was like, all right, maybe maybe she knows that's pretty something
2: other than that. I've been mixing those two terms like he's like he's crazy. So that's really no no cool. and if you Learned something. I to
1: mean me. yeah, and if you usually hear what you said, people yeah. will say no, they're the same thing because they're not yeah. you know traditional money, but you made a clear distinction, and that's true. Okay. So look, let me ask you, if people wanted to learn about private lending before we move on private lending, where could they actually learn other than your amazing group, you know, no, which I, was- I encourage everyone to join. <laughs>
0: Unfortunately, that's why the group was started. Um, oh, there's okay. not a lot of education out there. There's a couple books, you know, that are available on Amazon, but they, realistically, I own all of them. They read more like textbooks <laughs> than they do kind of a how-to manual. Yeah. So it's really unfortunately, it's kind of a way of investing that's still very much kind of in the dark ages when it comes to education, yeah. um, and which is a whole reason. And I started the group because, you know, like you mentioned at the beginning, every group I had joined previous to this one was just a place for scams and spam. There was nothing educational. There was nothing networking based. Um, And even to Bigger Pockets' credit, you know, they have all these amazing books on how to like evaluate a scope of work and how to buy your first apartment building in 30 days and how to do this and how to do that. And the only way private lending is mentioned, even in bigger pockets, is go find a private lender to fund your deals. And that leaves yeah. a whole crowd of people on the other side of the table like, okay, what do, how do we do this? Yeah. Um, so that's really, where, that's really where it stemmed from. And I would say the best place is really to just start talking to other people that are doing private lending. And I know that sounds far easier to say than it actually is to do because yeah. I, private lenders tend to take the private part quite seriously. We're like the hide and go seek champions. But it's when you can sit down and have a conversation and go, you know, kind of, how does it work? What are the expectations? Because I have a lot of active investors. The group used to be closed to active investors. But when I talked to active investors, when I realized how little education they even had about how to use private money, you know, I had them thinking private money was basically a down payment assistance program. So, you know, they didn't have 20% to put down on their rental they wanted to buy. So go find a private lender. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how this works at all. So mm-hmm. I would say, you know, if you really want to start with some books, there are some decent books on Amazon, but again, they're going to read more like textbooks than, than how-to manuals. Yeah. Um, if you have a good hard money loan broker in your area, somebody that you could build a relationship with, maybe having a conversation with them just talking about the loan process. Mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, maybe ultimately, you know, you just pay for a couple hours of a real estate attorney's time, you know, that's going to know about lending. And they'll be able to kind of walk you through the documentation, the usury laws, the limits, what's commonly done. That would probably be, in my opinion, the safest way to really get started. If it's something, you know, I, I have a lot of people like, oh, I don't want to pay for an attorney. I'm like, you're about to give someone a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. You don't want to spend $600 to make sure you're protected. Like, come on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, you, you uh, you get what you pay for, right. And if you right? if you pay zero, you're going to get probably negative in that level <laughs>
2: you, you you mentioned that it's very difficult and i want to go to, to i know the next to but the, to the other so the last question i swear it's just that you you keep bringing points that, that raises more questions i know you mentioned, yeah you mentioned how money broker our money lending broker is there any private money or private lending brokers out there that people can go to instead because now that I that I hear it's like I'd rather go to a private lender. than Yeah,
1: broker. Jeremy. We go to them all the time. What do you talk about?
2: <laughs> a, a, a private lender broker? Yeah, there is the
0: guys there, that we oh, go okay. to
1: their brokers. They they manage all the money. Uh, oh, okay. there's yeah. There's private, commercial, yeah. private equity, oh, yes, you exactly. name it. Okay, yeah, cool. there, <laughs> there's it was, it was
0: a couple the different station. ways <laughs> that yeah, there's a couple different ways that brokers can be involved. So they can kind of maintain a relationship with say maybe high net worth individuals that want to invest in this alternative investment and then basically you would make an application with that broker and then they kind of shop your file to various investors and say does anybody want to fund this deal and that's called whole node investing um, there's some other brokers that will kind of say they'll kind of piecemeal a deal together. So if you have a $100,000 loan, you know they'll have a pool of investors that say, okay, I'll chime in, I'll chip in 20, you know, this other person will chip in 30, this other person will chip in 50, and that's called fractional note investing. So it, mm-hmm. both of those are commonly done and it's usually done through a broker.
2: Got
1: it. Cool. Yeah, bro- brokers, I'll throw that plug out there. Brokers in anything like mortgage broker, a uh, a a funding broker broker, insurance brokers they bring you the most competitive rate i'm not going to go to bank of america i'm going to go to brokers like i don't to me it doesn't bother me paying an origination fee or a fee to them because they bring value and they they save me all this time from bouncing around and and getting the the cheapest price so okay let's jump into yeah jump jump into into the next go Go ahead ahead. well you got your no go go ahead (laughs) ahead. (laughs) i know your most questions (laughs) all right so uh you know now you're moving into other other lanes right so you've gone I mean you've been a chemistry teacher that is, is huge and you're teaching other people about real estate investing as well uh but you're you're also an LP and which is for those that maybe it's the first episode limited partner and then syndication but then you're also now starting your own fund how has this prepared you to start a fund
0: that one really kind of was born out of our sphere of influence, shall we say, are just the people we have around us. So the two key principal managers are one's an active duty service member, the other one's a veteran, I'm a military spouse. So mm-hmm. obviously when it comes down to these syndication processes, just the way regulation D is structured with 506B and 506C, obviously one 506C is only available to accredited investors And a lot of military members and their families tend not to fall into that accredited investor category. And then 506B, while it does allow what they call sophisticated investors, you're limited on the number of sophisticated investors. And while that sounds awesome, um, what it ends up doing is it actually ends up raising the minimum usually to about $50,000. It really depends on the raise that the particular syndicator needs to raise capital. Mm Uh, but usually it's $50,000, maybe on a rare occasion, it's about $25,000, usually about the, the lowest I've seen. But even then, that can be a little bit of a stretch for a lot of military families, especially active duty families, uh, military spouse, unemployment and underemployment has historically been very, very high. COVID did, does no favors in that category. So oftentimes military families, if they, even if they do have two parents, are oftentimes single income households. Just yeah. because of the moving around and childcare, and not having a career, so we kept, you know, having these stories and these conversations with these active duty service members and these veterans, saying, "We'd love to help you invest in multifamily. We be- we strongly believe this is a great asset. This is a great, you know, class to be in, but we just can't because of the way Regulation D was structured." And after the, I think they closed on three different deals just during COVID alone. And having that conversation three times with military members, it's like, we got to find a solution. You know, we have to yeah. find something. So the it kind of backtracks, you know, like a lot of things in real estate, you start with the goal first, and then you work backwards to figure out how to get there. Yeah. So regulation A ended up being something where we could have a low enough minimum. So the minimum for the regulation A fund is $5,000 versus $50,000 but you still get that benefit of ownership come tax time because you're still getting that depreciation, you're getting that K1 at the end of the year, just like you would in a syndication, but the investment is lower, but it's also diversified across multiple properties. So you end up kind of a, if you wanna think about it in a very simple way, you end up being a part owner in everything that fund buys. So instead of plunking $50,000 into just one investment in one property in one market, you're invested Mm. in multiple properties, potentially across multiple markets. So you end up being more diversified with less capital risk.
1: Yeah, and and just to clarify for the audience out there, you know, it's it's no different than like a mutual fund where you're diversifying with stocks and, you know, different different, uh, technology versus commodities or whatever it may be here you're maybe diversifying whatever the business plan that i'm not sure what, what is your your business plan as far as asset class but are you just focusing on multifamily or... we're focusing
0: on multifamily value add you know class b class c properties mm-hmm. class b class c neighborhoods
1: okay yeah so that's a diversification model of different properties right there uh which is super awesome you you're doing like everything i want to do i'm not gonna <laughs> lie i think i think you're my uh you know i'm a I'm gonna put a little picture of you right here because honestly like <laughs> you're, you're doing funding. I love that this whole side, right? Like for me, you know, real estate investing, haven't tried different strategies for, for a long time. It really has been only the last few years where I've hit into syndication funds and private lending i'm like why haven't i done this before (laughs)
0: and and that's the sentiment i hear over and over and over again you know see people you know they they go through this real estate hazing as i call it so yeah yeah you you go through the fix and flip or the or the buy and hold Mm -hmm. and then you realize how miserable you are doing both of those And then Mm -hmm. after you do that, like the door opens up to this just buffet of options that are available to you after you've gone through the hazing. So if you've made it through doing your first fix and flip or your first landlord experience, that's when they're like, oh yeah, by the way, there's all these other cool things you can do.
1: Yeah, no, because I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, man, we we put a down payment almost 300,000 on our portfolio to buy. And then what could I have done with 300,000 on the private money (laughs) side? And it made me really think like, you know, when we did it, we yeah. were just really getting into a different scale. But you don't We, start, we could don't have been a really one. Yeah. yeah, you don't really think about how how you can do it from a different perspective, right? And no one, like you said, it's just not out there. Um, and that's why you know we're excited to have you on because it's a different perspective that people don't don't usually hear, especially like yeah. you said, military. You know, people who are not accredited investors don't know don't hear about this so, so how how are the how's the military receiving you know military members receiving you know the concept of the fund and and grasping it right because you know i i love my military members i'm a military member Brother's a military member but sometimes it can be hard especially to to make not make people but to teach like hey this is a a financial opportunity uh for you right because all we get taught well if we get taught, is TSP, right? Yes, yes. Um, you know, put money in your savings, right? So how, how has that been for you as far as teaching?
0: I think it's been easier, if anything, when you compare it to something like uh, syndication or even buying a, a rental house, for example, because the, the $5,000 is a lot less scary putting in $50,000 or, you know, having to put a 20% down payment on, you know, a $200,000 duplex, you know, wherever they are, if, if they're in San Diego, if they're stationed in San Diego, you know, you're not going to find anything out in San Diego for under $600,000, you know, to live in. Um, So, you know, if you're having to buy investment property out there in San Diego, you know, you're really chunking down some change out mm -hmm. there. So I think in the grand scheme of things, the ability to kind of experiment and get started in real estate for $5,000. And, you know, you can start getting the distributions. You can start getting the investor updates. You can start learning the language. It get, it's, if anything, it's helping to build that habit and that mindset that you can be an investor while you're active duty. It's not something that you're going to have to go and swing a hammer on the weekends, you know, and pray you don't have duty and all these other things. It's something that you can fit into the busy lifestyle that you already are leading
1: yeah no that's that's true and are they are you getting a lot of attention from the military community as far as wanting to go into the fund
0: yeah absolutely it's been incredible because i think there's so many people out there that want an opportunity to invest in real estate but whether it's time capital you know just from geography you know i've moved 19 times in 20 years the idea of trying to buy a rental house in every place we've been stationed is just horrifying so not to mention some of the places we've been stationed are not rental areas to begin with they're just not cash flow markets so you know i think a lot of the va loan is a great thing but i think it can also kind of set back a military investor Because a lot of places will go and say, Oh, go buy a house with your VA loan and then rent it out when you leave and then rinse and repeat everywhere you go. But they're not having that follow-on conversation of does that meet your goals? Is it a cash flowing market? You know, do you have the reserves? Um, You know, for example, if the AC breaks in one of your rental houses, you might spend five thousand dollars putting that AC, brand new AC, yeah. in. But that did not increase the value of your house by five thousand dollars. So it can't. There are a lot of what I would call sunk costs with owning real estate, and people are like, "Oh, but it's going to appreciate." And it's like, I'm one of those people. Do not bank on the appreciation. That's icing on the cake. It needs yeah. to cash flow from day one in order to be in my portfolio. So yeah. don't bank oh on God. appreciation. <laughs>
2: Especially hey, residential, yeah
1: that's what i say icing on the cake right yeah. because it, i i think in 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 commercial it's all about the equity play cuz yeah. you can truly force appreciate it it's, it's less on the cash play but you know in in the buying hold like i have a property that appreciated i think obviously cuz the the is ridiculous um, almost like 150 190,000 which i would have never imagined by anything that colorado springs was going to appreciate by like 15 percent in a year and then the year before it was going to be 10 percent. like who would think that right it's just ridiculous numbers but then to me that's icing on the cake because i was really looking at it from a hold and cash flow perspective right and yeah I, a lot of people don't understand that so i i you know I link up on that. We're sick up.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's really and that's what I hear most often from active investors. are like, oh, you know, I had to put new flooring in, or I had to paint it, or mm-hmm. whatever. And it's like, oh, but it's gonna it's gonna appreciate when I sell it in five years. And I'm like, yeah, but you're out five thousand dollars right now. <laughs> yep.
1: yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, you know, you live and you learn, German. What else you got that we could dive into?
2: No, no, I'm fascinated. I, I'm actually fascinated with the uh, with the fact that you're creating. A community, right? And that's what my brother and I are doing. And, and it takes it takes an immense amount of work to do that. Um, you created a, a Facebook group. Um, you do so many other things. I mean, you're creating that, that, that community of well, I wouldn't say community, but but all these all, all these activities that you're that you're going into in your life. You know, you're, you're a, a lender, and you, you got your fund. Now you're creating a community on Facebook. Uh, in helping out the, uh, the, the military members, active military members. Um, I really admire it, uh, you know, because uh, like I said, my brother and I were, were working on doing that. It takes, it takes a lot of work. Uh, so I, I truly admire it. Not only that, but you're also a professor, a chemistry professor. Oh my God, out of everything, a chemistry professor. So <laughs> it, it, it just blows my mind. seriously, really, I, I truly admire so, you. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, thank you. I mean, I keep myself busy. That's all I got to say
2: yeah no, like no that's awesome and, and, and you're smiling you don't look like like that worn out person that is like oh my god i'm tired yeah it's like <laughs> you seem like you enjoy every minute of it i love it
0: i i yeah. mean i really do as as an extrovert stuck inside during covid the the group that i created has actually been a saving grace i mean i've i've met two business partners through that group i've yeah. talked to people on five different continents that invest you know in the mm-hmm. united states but live abroad I mean, it's just been a phenomenal opportunity for networking and meeting new people and it's kept me sane because I'm married to someone. If I get a hundred words out of him at once, that's that's a chatty Kathy day for him. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. But you know, I I love that you you know, it helped it, it's helped you during this time of COVID. Uh, because just like you, I'm an extrovert, but however, for me, it's just I'm so busy and I come home, I have the kids and this, so I don't have time. And you know. You, you said it in the beginning, you know, the whole blessing piece, even though it's, it's COVID, but this whole technology and being able to have, you know, events on Zoom has helped me because in the past, I couldn't take time to go at 7 p.m., you know, to a real estate event. I got to put my kids to bed, right? After this, I'm, that's what I'll do, right? So, you know, I, I, I really feel for everyone out there, but you got to take the positives out of the the moment too, right? But yeah, Alex, absolutely.
0: Let,
1: tell us, tell the audience where uh, where they can find you. Let me let me you ask know. one
2: more question. Ah, anyway. <laughs> no, I, I I love the subject of introvert and extrovert, and you mentioned you're an extrovert. So, so were you always an extrovert, or the uh, what you do right now uh, got you to become an extrovert? Uh, out of course, I don't know, I don't, I
0: don't know Oh, I've I would say I've always been an extrovert. Uh, my spouse and I have been married for 20 years and we've always said that I'm pulling him out of his shell and he's stuffing me back into mine. So it's, it's definitely one of those situations where opposites attract. So, you know, I guess you can't have two talkative people in the same relationship that tends to be a problem. Right. So, and the two quiet people, there would be no relationship. So you kind of need that balance.
2: (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. That's awesome.
1: No, that's That's great. All right. Well, you know, we're going to respect your time almost an hour here, but I'm sure they people got amazing value out of this. So if you can go ahead and tell them where they can reach you, tell us all about your Facebook group, mission capital, et cetera, anything you want to uh, tell the audience.
0: Absolutely. So the group is called private lending lessons. It's on Facebook. Um, feel free to join. Like I said, it's purely educational and networking based. So it's everybody's welcome, passive investors and active investors and people just kind of starting out. And then the fund is called Mission First Capital. So they can go to missionfirstcapital.co, not .com. It's .co. So if they want to learn more about what we're doing with the fund. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. So my URL for LinkedIn is actually my personal mantra I live by. That I invest passively to live actively. So it's quite, that's, that's literally how, how I kind of focus everything in my world is if it doesn't right. fit in that mantra, I can say no without guilt, because I know what my, my passion and my drive is.
1: My God, I love it. Yeah, amazing. So, you know, if you don't have a mantra, you feel bad, get yourself a mantra. <laughs> right (laughs) all right guys well thank you for for joining us alex you know it's been amazing and out there for the listeners please give us a check out uh all the other episodes give us a five-star review if you love this uh check out the ebook the course everything else that we're doing uh we're always excited to help reach out and we're out thank you
2: thank you alex